I was down, I, I moved down from the Midlands down to Harrow and uh, uh, one day I received a phone call to say my father had just died suddenly. So we shot up to Stoke-on-Trent, which is where I'm from. And um, the minute I walked into the door, I got the feeling that my father was speaking to me. And it wasn't like I could hear it, hear his voice. It was a bit like, you know, when you're, when you're doing something boring, like gardening and, you, and thoughts go through your head. Yeah. But you, you know they're your thoughts. You can't surprise yourself with your own thoughts. In the same way that you can't tickle yourself, mm-hmm. you can't surprise yourself with your own thoughts. And uh, I just got the feeling that he was uh, speaking to me. Uh, it's something that I now know is called clairaudience, uh, but perhaps we'll come to that later. Um, and he said, we all assumed he'd had a heart attack because he, he died very quickly, very suddenly. But what he said to me was, um, he said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that. I got a pain in my stomach when I leaned forward um, and I called to your mother and she was in the kitchen doing the dishes and by the, by the time she came through, I was gone. He said, it was just, it was as quick as just clicking your fingers. I'm thinking that nobody dies of a pain in the stomach. Mm. Anyway, he, um, he was speaking to me off and on throughout the day and, um, he told me all the things you'd expect a father to say to a son, you know, don't look after your mom, make sure she's all right, keep in touch with her, blah, blah, blah. And uh, <clears throat> towards the afternoon, he said, um, there's, there's a, a wallet with some money in that your mum doesn't know about, and I want you to go and get it. It's in the wardrobe. So I went upstairs, and I'm looking in the wardrobe. Can't find it. I looked in the drawer. Can't find it. Looked in the chest of drawers. Can't find it. At which point, I think, I'm going mad. Hmm. So that night I spoke to my Mrs. Carol and uh, I said, I think I'm going mad because I think my father's speaking to me. And I told her all the things he'd said to me. And she's quite an understanding sort of person. She said, well, you know, you're just going through severe grief. This is a massive shock you've just had. Your father's just suddenly dropped dead with not being ill before. Um, your brain's playing tricks on you. Anyway. About three, three or four days later, we got through the result of the autopsy and he died of a ruptured abdominal aneurysm. He had a big bubble of, of, uh, of a, an artery in the middle of his stomach, which burst yeah. exactly as he'd said. At the funeral, um, my mother was talking to the next door neighbour. In the, in the Midlands, we call the next door neighbour's auntie. My auntie Alice, she wasn't yeah, really alive. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and she said... And I heard her say to her, I was washing the dishes and I heard him shout, but by the time I went through, he, he was dead. Again, exactly as my father had said. Well, you can guess what's coming next, can't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the funeral, uh, we put him down into the ground and uh, and he said, I've got to go now. And I called out uh, and I said, uh, goodbye, Dad. And it upset a few people around the grave. But, you know, it was like it was like he was actually saying goodbye to me. And about a couple of weeks later, I was ringing my mum up every day and I rang her up and I said, what have you been doing today? She said, well, I've been cleaning out all the stuff. Uh, she was in the Derby and Joan Club and they said, what she, what, in order to get over a, a, a death of your partner, you really need to clear out all their stuff so that you're not constantly being reminded and just, and just hang on to the things that you would put on your mantelpiece. And she said, and I found this wallet full of money in your smoking cupboard. 
<laughs> at which point I, I said to Kaz, do you know that what happened to me that day that he died was real? This is this is not a, an aberration. This is not my mind playing tricks on me. This actually happened. And so I decided that I would then spend what is going to turn out to be the rest of my life trying to understand what the phenomenon was. Anyway, I went I went back to my job in research and I, and I was telling this story to quite a few of the guys there. Uh, and we were a multidisciplinary team in operational research. There were psychologists, there were mining, I was a mining surveyor, uh, there were mathematicians, there were legal people, there were all environmentalists, all across the board scientists. And uh, I, I sat in the coffee room telling them this story. And so many people came back to me with an almost identical story when someone mm -hmm. close to them had died. And I thought, well, you know, why, why do scientists not talk about this? Why, why do they insist that the world is materialist? Anyway, I had, a, I had this guy just come down from Cambridge and he'd, he'd done a, a, most of the people I know are either master's degree like yourself or, or PhD. He'd just come down from Cambridge and uh, he'd, he'd done a PhD in, in topology. Do you know what topology is? No, no, no. It's a branch of mathematics to do with surfaces, uh, sort of mapping terrains, if you like, but it's multidimensional. And it's, I'm a mathematician, and believe me, it's, in my, in my opinion, it's the most complex branch of mathematics. It sounds it's, it, yeah. It's incredibly complex. It's beyond, it's beyond my ability as just a, a, a I'm a, I'm a, what you call applied mathematician, mm -hmm. but it's way beyond my ability. And he'd, he'd been, we were out at lunch, and it, I said, well, what was your PhD about? He said, well, I was, I was working out methods to do transfer, transformations, transformations is, uh, converting one sort of set of mathematical formulae into another in the L2 plane. I said, well, what's the L2 plane? He said, well, it's all to do with multiple dimensions. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of dimensions uh, beyond space-time. You know, you know, there's the four standard dimensions, which yep. is yep. up, down, left, right, uh, north, south, uh, and time. Time is the debatable one. Um and he said, oh, no, 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 uh, the way that physics is at at the moment, and we're talking now in 1989, this was, probably, um, and um, string theory had just been established by uh, John Haglin and his team, and they, they, they developed, uh, in fact, I think they developed a couple of 10-dimensional uh, string theories. Do you know anything about string theory? Very loosely. Well, in, in layman's terms, basically there are, there are two there are two, if you like, branches of physics. There's the de, there's the deterministic branch of physics, which is all to do with gravity, Einstein and, and Euclidean, Euclidean geometry and all that sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that you can write formulas for, and out comes the answer. You can work out why planets pull to, towards one another, all that sort of thing. And then there's quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is is the is the physics. It's it's the most validated uh, science in existence. Quantum mechanics. When they do experiments on quantum mechanics, the results agree um, with with experimentation. The experimentation results agree with theory to about six or seven sigma. What that means is to something like ten decimal places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, but the, the thing about quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics explains all the other forces, you know, the nuclear strong, nuclear weak, blah, 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 and, and electromagnetism. And, and that it's probabilistic rather than deterministic, which means there are no exact answers. There are just 
a set of probability equations. And, that, and we, know that, we know that quantum mechanics is as true as we, we can validate it. And we also know that gravity is as true as we are able to validate it. And we know that they both exist side by side in the same universe. So there must be some unifying mathematics that fits them together. together. Yeah. And, and so what in general terms, that's, co uh, that's called a unified field theory. Uh, it's, it's actually to do with fields, but I won't, I won't go into the, into the details of that. And Einstein never managed to achieve um, a unified field theory because it wasn't actually achieved until 1985. But it's completely theoretical. You might think I'm going off on tangents here, but I'm just, I, it's interesting to know the mathematical background because yeah, it's yeah. leading somewhere. Um, it wasn't until 1985 that, that, that uh, John Haglin and his team developed the first unified field theory, which actually married the two branches of physics together in a single theory. The only snag, if you can call it a snag, was that it required an extra six spatial dimensions over and above space-time. It required 10. And um, by 1991, so many PhDs were being done on string theory that there were five competing string theories, mm -hmm. all of which were slightly different. And then what I consider to be the cleverest person uh, since Turing, probably, that but certainly the most clever person on the earth at the moment, Professor Ed Witten. He looked at the five theories and by adding an extra dimension and making it 11 dimensions, he said all the other five theories were subsets of, a, of an 11 dimensional, what they call manifold. So that theory was called M theory. Nobody really knows what M stands for. But what I'm saying is that it's, it's all theoretical and it all explains a load of stuff. But there is, at the moment, there is no empirical evidence yeah. for string theory because how do you set up an experiment to, uh, to examine what happens in hyperdimensional space? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't have the means to do it. Yeah. Well, CERN have conducted a few experiments uh, so far, which uh, have been inconclusive. They're, they're looking for supersymmetric particles, which is one of the one of the predictions of string theory. And if they find them, then it doesn't prove string theory, but it's evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. so why am I telling you all that? Bearing in mind that at the time when I was talking to this guy, this, this PhD guy, um, I, was, I was seeking a, an under, a better understanding of what the spirit world might be, because obviously I'd spoken to quite a few spiritual people about my father's, you know, speaking to me after he died. And the, the, this, this concept of the spirit world kept coming up. And it just, two and two does make four sometimes, and it just occurred to me, well, the spirit world could be, could exist in these extra dimensions. Mm -hmm. It could, that's why, that's why it's a bit ephemeral, a bit, a bit sort of difficult to grasp, because yeah. mm -hmm. it exists outside of space-time. And um, so I, I I went forward on the assumption that um, spirituality was the, uh, derived from this hyperdimensional space. And back in 19, this was back in the 1980s. And I started to write a book called The Dimensions of Consciousness, not surprisingly, perhaps. And, um, but I found by about, uh, about 2008, 2009, I found that my knowledge was, was increasing at a faster rate than I was writing at. 
So I, I abandoned the book and I started to write a blog, I think in about 2010, I think it was called The Dimensions of Consciousness. It's still online. I, I only wrote it for about uh, two years. I, I went blind uh, in 2012 uh, through a botched operation and I, and I had to abandon all computer work. It was it was a bit traumatic, but needless to say, I, I, can't just, I, I wouldn't be here now if I couldn't see now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I only wrote the blog for a couple of years, but I wrote, I basically reached a point where I'd laid what I've just said to you, I'd laid that down as a sort of scientific framework mm -hmm. and I'd talked about time. You, you might want to look it up. It's on Blogspot. I think it's the real Jeff Hall uh, dot blogspot. And, um, yeah, uh, I've had quite a few people um, say that, you know, it's, 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 it's well put together and I've had a few uh, sceptical materialists say you're talking about a pot pot, but I'm used to that by now. <laughs> It's one of the things that, it's, as a scientist, the minute you step outside the box, which is what I've done, the minute you step outside the box, you find that um, you get you get uh, flamed, as it used to be called, uh, trolled, as it's called these days, yeah. by people whose perhaps careers depend on uh, on not changing the scientific paradigm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I mentioned uh, earlier John Hagelin. Uh, as John Hagelin, Dr. John Hagelin, he, he, you, have you ever seen the um, the video, The Secret? No, I, don't, I don't recall it. Look it up on Netflix or, right. or uh, well, it's available on YouTube, actually, mm -hmm. called The Secret. It was a big, big deal back in the, in the 2000s. And uh, John Hagelin appears in that quite often. Now, John Hagelin, I said to you before, he developed... Um, the first, it was called SU5, uh, I think it was SU5 inverted or something, uh, string theory. And uh, it just so happens that as well as being a top scientist, he's also uh, a master of transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out, have you ever heard of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Yep. Now, he was the person who famously converted the Beatles to a more spiritual path in life. You know the Beatles, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And uh, what, mo what not many people know about Maharashi Yogi is they had a PhD in astrophysics. Oh, right. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And he, he, was, a, he was a physicist as well. And um, I was on a train. These are all anecdotal. But I was on a train um, and I was writing my book, The Dimensions of Consciousness, on, on a little laptop PC. And in those days laptop PCs had a grey screen and you had to trail the mouse because the image was so crap. And uh, and I was sitting opposite this guy who was also on his laptop and the train broke down. So my battery ran out, his battery ran out and we got chatting and I said, what are you writing? He said, I'm a writer on transcendental meditation uh, because I'm a member of the Maharishi Institute and we're based in Mentmore Towers in, in Leighton Buzzard. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm actually writing. No, I wasn't. I was writing a, a business game at the time because I, I used to run a training company mm -hmm. or be in a training company. And uh, I used to write computerized business games in those days. And um, I said, oh, I'm writing a business game. I said, but my real passion is writing about consciousness. He said, oh, well, where are you? And I told him. And he looked at me and he said, yes, that's right. As if, like, I'm an authority. And what you've just told me that you think consciousness is in the higher dimensions is correct. <laughs> and I said, well, what gives you the right to say that? And he told me about Maharishi. And I went, me and went up to uh, Mentmore Towers and had lunch with him. And he showed me a um, plaque on the wall 
uh, drawn up in 1972, which was a mathematical proof that the grand unified field, which underpins the whole of reality, is a field of consciousness. So John Haglin is a master of transcendental meditation of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi school. And he goes around the world um, at the moment. Well, I think he's finished the tour now, but uh, with a lecture on uh, could the grand unified field be a field of pure consciousness? Have you heard the expression grand unified field? Yes. But yeah, grand uni the grand unified field, if you like, in simple terms, if you break down what's called the standard model of physics, you've got your molecules, which are made up of atoms, which are made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons, which are made up of quarks, mesons, bosons, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and string theory says that each of these subatomic particles are actually, um, they're, they're actually one-dimensional superstrings vibrating in a ten-dimensional manifold. And the way in which they the peculiar way in which they vibrate in, in the 10-dimensional space that they exist in determines what sort of particle they are. So where do one-dimensional superstrings come from? They percolate out of a grand unified field of question mark, of what? Mm -hmm. So the grand unified field, if you like, it's the, it's the substrate, the basis, the ground of all being, the substrate of reality. And John Hagelin was going around the world with a lecture tour saying, could the grand unified field be a field of consciousness? <clears throat> now, the, the tradition that he comes from uh, is, the, is the meditational, subjective meditational tradition of Ayurvedic, uh, Ayurveda. Do you know, have you heard that one? Yeah. 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 Now, the, the Ayurvedic or Ayurvedic model of consciousness um, is derived by deep meditation and contemplation and it's it's i i don't i don't understand this in detail i've only i've only ever seen john's lecture on it so you know don't quote me as an authority on this but their understanding of how how consciousness works on a number of levels each level's got a name in in, in the ayurvedic science um is derived from meditation and contemplation and it's a consensus view over hundreds, maybe thousands of years of many, many gurus. And what John noticed <clears throat> was that the structural, each level, is, each, each level in, the, in the structure of the Ayurvedic model of consciousness has a different number of elements in it. And it just so happened that the structure of the Ayurvedic model of consciousness was identical to the structure of the standard model of physics right down to the grand unified field. So he, he, he naturally asked the question, could they be the same one and the same thing? And as a result of that and my own researches, I, I've become a, a panpsychist. I, I don't know if you've seen me talking about that online. Basically, the, 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 there are a few definitions of panpsychism, but my definition of panpsychism is that the... The, the, the ground of all being is a, is, is a field of consciousness and therefore consciousness it pervades the whole of reality at every dimensional level. It's beyond space time. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> it's uh, everything that exists begins with consciousness. 
it, it percolates out of a field of consciousness. Therefore, consciousness itself must be ubiquitous throughout the universe, which sort of implies that life must be as well. I got interested in, in uh, extraterrestrials or uh, extra dimensionals, as they call it these days, by the way. I don't know if you know that. And uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of bull around on that subject as well as yes. a lot of uh, really good information, but I won't go into that now. And um, anyway, backtracking a bit, I talked about the book and the blog. I gave up the blog and uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't see enough well enough to write. And uh, about two years later, I'd, my, I'd re my site had recovered to the point where I could, I could work again. Uh, and I thought well what's the best way of doing this what i'll do is i'll, I'll join a few facebook groups that deal with consciousness because i was on facebook have you joined the um um I thought, what is it called now the consciousness project, uh, on project facebook. i mean the one project called project consciousness, consciousness. yeah yeah that's yeah. the one yeah that that used to be called the human consciousness project but it got confused with the global consciousness project which i'll tell you about in a minute um but it, it's changed its name a couple of times i think it's run by Lovely woman, very, 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 very uh, astute woman, very, very um, bright, very talented. Um, yes, and uh, so I, I made a lot of contributions in that group in years gone by, and I, I had a lot of um, stiff resistance, let's call it that, yeah. from, uh, from sceptical scientists, professional sceptics. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, there were there were a few people uh, that I sort of um, conversed on a regular basis with uh, who were professors of artificial intelligence, uh, quantum mechanics, stuff like that, who didn't dismiss the stuff that I'd written in my blog, and they didn't dismiss the ideas that I was putting out uh, because they were open-minded enough to see that there was a lot of data out there that just hadn't been analysed. And one of the problems that science has is that uh, to conduct experiments is expensive and the money comes from sponsorship usually philanthropists or or institutions that want to make money out of the research the results of the research and it's now on impossible to get real money up front to look into uh, what's called sci research yeah yeah and um so there's a lot of data out there, but it's not. It, it's often dismissed by scientists. It's often dismissed because um, because they've got a they've got a particular axe to grind, and they can always say, "Well, there's no empirical evidence for it," and there's no empirical evidence for two reasons. One is that the funding's not available, and any 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 professional scientist who chooses to get involved in sci research is risking his career. Mm. And if it's a professor, he's risking his tenure at university by just by getting involved in it. That's that's how closed the scientific world is. And um, where was I going with this? Uh, yeah, there are, there are people like Rupert Sheldrake. Have you come across Rupert Sheldrake? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he's, he's one of the uh, skeptic busters and he, he, he's bust quite a few of the myths that exist in science, uh, uh, but I don't know if you if you've come across the um, some of the standard myths in science. For example, uh, that there was a big bang that started the universe. 
you know that there's absolutely no solid evidence for that? Yet scientists take that as a given. That, you know, it, it, I think the expression is give me one miracle and I'll, I'll show you the mathematics yeah, of the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's also the, the idea that life on, on Earth um, developed from a prime, primordial soup, I think they call it. If this is treated as scientific almost um, dogma, that life sprung out of a primordial soup uh, with a combination of lightning and goodness knows what else and a few miracles. Absolute rubbish. Absolute no evidence for that at all. Anywhere. That's pure speculation. It's funny because, you know, if you if you hear it, you hear those sort of things, this taken as so concretely the truth that it's you never question if there's evidence or not. And the thing is that the scientists will say, you know, where's your where's your proof for you, for psi phenomenon? And you can always turn around and say, Well, where's your proof for the Big Bang? Where's your proof for for, for the origin of life? I mean, there's there's a local uh, woman called Mangia Samantha Lawton. She lives in Amersham, or lived in Amersham. Wrote a book called Punk Science. Uh, she's actually a medical doctor, but she's interested in physics. And she expelled a lot of the myths of science, amongst which are the ones I've just spoken to you. There's another one which, um, if you th think of this as an obvious as an obvious question in science, given that human life starts with a single cell that splits. How does that single cell know what to become? How does that single cell know how to split and split and split and then mutate into different forms of cells and then migrate the cells into the right place and the right function to produce the right type of creature to which it, it belongs, to, to which species it belongs? How does, how does that, where does, they, where does that information come from? Yeah, I think, I think most people just take it for granted that the scientists must understand it. They don't. They, the, 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 well, as, as Mangia said in a book, she said um, that they came up with an explanation that, that the organisation of cells in a fetus is managed by messenger cells, full stop. Oh, well, that's it then. It's the messenger cells that do it. Um, hang on a minute. Where do the messenger cells come from and where do they get their information from? Mm. Rupert Sheldrake uh, has got um, this theory about morphic fields and uh, I think, I think, if I understand him correctly, he, he thinks that morphic fields are actually what's the organising factor. Um, and if you think about it, if the if the whole of existence is underpinned by consciousness, then the whole the whole of existence is underpinned by a form of intelligence. And um, I'll come on to what what I mean by consciousness in that context in a second. So. The, 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 the information needed to produce a creature from a single cell is not in the cell necessarily. It's out there in the fabric. In the field, yeah. That's a, I think that's what Rupert's saying. Subject of consciousness. I frequently, get, I frequently get challenged by people who don't understand the context of the word consciousness when it's talked about in grand unified field theory terms it can be difficult to get your head around yes but and, and that's because that's because the um it's it's a fairly uh, blinkered view of consciousness and, and there are quite a few scientists who believe this that the human mind in fact the human brain is the is the only real conscious thing in the universe 
Um, there, are so, there are some people who actually think that animals are not conscious. That they're actually not conscious. I mean, these are people that don't have pets. Yes, exactly. Well, anybody who's ever had a dog knows that that's not true. Yeah. And I can't remember. There was some famous physicist, and it might have been Newton or somebody like that. But some famous phys- physicist back in the, in in previous centuries to prove that uh, that animals don't have consciousness threw a dog out of a second story window to kill it and said, "You see, that dog didn't really." didn't really feel anything because it's not conscious and to kill the dog to prove the point that the dog wasn't conscious. I mean, come on. The semantic difficulty that I have when, when I'm talking about consciousness in the broader sense and, and Dean Radin, I'll talk about him in a second. Dean Radin in his book, um, uh, which one was it? Real magic is the one he's just produced. Uh, he, he actually talks of big consciousness with a big C and small consciousness with a small C and, Small consciousness is conscious awareness because what people think is consciousness is actually conscious awareness. It's awareness. That's the key thing. And awareness and consciousness tend to be used as if they're synonyms of one another, but they're not. Consciousness is, is, is a fundamental fabric of existence. Awareness is a property, one of the many properties of consciousness, just like matter is a property of consciousness. Uh, you know, energy is a property of consciousness. Awareness is a property of consciousness. And this is the problem you have with the semantics because the minute you start saying that the grand unified field is a field of consciousness, people are saying, oh, are you telling me that, that you know, my chair is conscious then? Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the wording I tend to use is um, the, the atomic structure of everything has uh, participates in the field of consciousness because it's ultimately derived from the field of consciousness. That doesn't necessarily mean to say it's got awareness. Yeah. And and I developed an idea which has been taken up by a few people. I've, I've seen it. Um, I, I originally I originally wrote about this in my blog in 2011. That there's a spectrum of consciousness or conscious awareness, and you can think of it as um, you can think of it as, as like the electromagnetic spectrum. The, the, the electromagnetic spectrum goes from the broad wavelengths of infrasound right up to the super high frequencies of gamma rays and x-rays and beyond. And human beings are tuned in to a very narrow band of this massive, massive spectrum. We are tuned into a band that's that wide mm-hmm. on a spectrum that's that wide called visible light. So we can see visible light. But just because we can see visible light... That doesn't mean to say visible light is the definition of the spectrum. Similarly with consciousness, it's the same model of this spectrum of consciousness idea. Consciousness is a spectrum and it vibrates at different levels. In the spiritual traditions, they talk about the vibrations of consciousness and and the vibrations of spirit. They always use the word vibrations. But the vibrations can have different frequencies. And the frequency that human beings are at makes us the preeminent conscious entity on the earth at the moment. Notice I said on the earth at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are higher levels of consciousness, which are spiritual levels of consciousness, disembodied levels of consciousness, the spirit world, these these spirit people that that that, that us spiritual people talk about. And then there are the other ones that are so they're so low in vibration that they're, they're dormant, if you like, the, the consciousness of a rock 
the conscious awareness of a rock yeah. is is dormant. It's it's inert. It's it's so it's at such a low level. It, you could almost think of it as one bite of consciousness, mm-hmm. which in its in its own which in its own right, it can't do anything. It can't it can't turn itself into awareness. And there's a there's a guy called Tononi who's written this book called um, Integrated Information Theory, mm-hmm. where he he talks about and I, I'm, I'm I haven't. I haven't read it yet. I've got I bought the book, but I'm, I'm still reading something else. I've, I've read about his book, which is why I bought it. And um, he, his basic idea is that when information comes together uh, in a in enough quantity, in enough complexity, and that information is processed in a particular way, it then defines what level of consciousness comes out. And he calls this he calls this measure phi. As I say, I can't say more about that. At the moment, because I don't really I read the book, yeah. But you know, that, that's my understanding of it, and it, I think he's basically talking about the same idea that <clears throat> there are different there are different levels of consciousness uh, that he that he is measuring using this uh, phi uh, term, and I call them different vibrations of consciousness. But that opens the door if you accept the idea of a <clears throat> spectrum of consciousness. It opens the door to uh, disembodied consciousness, higher dimensional consciousness, spirits, and um, and let me talk a bit. Uh, no, let me, let me let me talk about ions, just in case you're not. Have you come across the Institute of Noetic Sciences yet? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> well, you you may have come across Dean Radin. Yeah. A, li- a little. Uh, well, he's gone grey now, but he used to be dark headed guy. Uh, <laughs> Dean Radin is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. <clears throat> and the institute no no i think noetic sciences are the the, sci- the science of knowledge and understanding and uh, they've done a lot of the apocryphal research into consciousness they, they are the ones who actually do the research and get funding for the research that you know that conventional fun, science yeah. won't fund and um he he took over a project called the global consciousness project i mentioned it earlier have you, have you come across that yet Again, it's all to do with random, num- random number generators. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, it, it started, um, um, I think it was Roger, Roger Nelson in Princeton uh, set up the project originally in the 1980s. And um, they, they were, I think they were originally looking to see whether human intention, what they were trying to do is to see if they, were, if they, could, they could detect um, non-local uh, um, phenomenon, not just a word, uh, not like a word, non-local effects for the time being, uh, of consciousness. So what they were doing was they, they were putting students in front of random number generators that were generating ones and zeros on a random basis, but, you know, evenly, um, to see if they could influence the machine to produce more ones or more zeros. So they were, they were, trying, to, they were trying to show that intention, human intention could affect a physical device at a distance just by thinking about it and some of their results um, were quite encouraging and so they went on to say well could it be that human attention could be detectable in other words if there was a global phenomenon that happened like for example 9-11 I'll come to that um, which focused the attention simultaneously of enough people, 
could that focus of attention on one event be capable of being perceived by the change in the stream of outputs from random number generators? So what they did is they put a load of random number generators around the world. I think they originally had about 20. I think there are hundreds now. Uh, this was in the 1980s. And what these things did is they just put out random numbers, 24, 7, 3, 6, 5, all the time. And all the data was sent back to what was then Princeton, but now is Ireland. Um, and then what they did is they did what's called a retrospective analysis. When, when an event happened that caught the attention of the world, Princess Diana's wedding was one, OJ Simpson's trial was another, 9-11 was another, the tsunami was another. Mm -hmm. Um, what they then do is they go back and they look at the data, which has been sort of collected without any particular objective other than to collect the data, to see whether when these events happened, did the machines go off random? And they use a statistical technique called cumulative analysis. And it's pretty much certain now that it does happen. And they're, they're at a level now of seven sigma. Now, what's, what seven sigma means is that it's seven standard deviations away from what you'd expect randomly. And in a lot of science, um, do, do you know much about statistics, by the way? <laughs> Again, very, very loosely. Only briefly well, have I touched on that. Let me just give you a, give you a very a brief uh, statistics 101. Basically, um, what... When, when a random event happens and you can, you can plot um, the, the number of occurrences of a particular value that happens in any, in any population, I'm trying to simplify it and generalize it. And, and basically, some values occur more often than other ones. And uh, so what you do is you develop a thing called a probability density function, which basically is a statistical curve that says this is the range of values that, that we expect and this is the frequency at which they occur and the frequency at which they occur most often is most likely to be the actual value we're looking for right that's the way it tends to work now when you're doing the statistical analysis basically what you do is you you say well we'd expect by random chance this result the most the most frequent one we the most expected one yeah and if we get a result that's slightly different, how different is it? So this sigma, or standard deviations, uh, this sigma value is a, is a measure of how unexpected the result is. And the more unexpected it is, the more likely it is that it's not the result of random chance. Because if, if it was random chance to produce the one in the middle, if it's unexpected, it would be out there somewhere. Right. Yeah. Now, in, in standard, most standard scientific tests, um, yeah, most of them. They they usually look for standard deviations of three, and and if outside of three, in other words, three sigma, once once the result is more than three standard deviations away from the expected result, in other words, only five percent of the of the of the other of the observed results would, would appear at that level, mm -hmm. then then they'll accept that as evidence, not proof, but evidence that maybe they're looking at a phenomenon that isn't random, right? If it, was on, if it was in the middle of three random, if it's far enough away, it's not random. If it's four sigma, that's even better. You're talking about one in a thousand chance of it being random. And the less chance it is that it's random, the more chance it is that it's a phenomenon. 
five sigma it's it's exponential five sigma isn't like twenty thousand. i don't know what the numbers are mm -hmm. but when you get when you get to seven sigma you're talking about one in a billion chance that it's random mm -hmm. and the global consciousness project analysis shows that um human consciousness does affect these random number generators and the chance that what they've observed is random is less than one in a billion so therefore it's a phenomenon does science accept it no they trot out with this mantra of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence well how bloody extraordinary is seven sigma you don't see that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. and uh, yeah, so so Dean Radin, Dean Radin and Institute of Noetic Sciences is a good way to start uh, your researches into consciousness because they, if, if you're interested in the science of it, that is. I ought to stop a bit now and give you a chance to speak. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I love all this sort of stuff. Um, I think of, of questions that I had with your experience to begin with of your father talking to you. So you experienced that um, as thoughts of your own, but were they distinguishable from your own general kind of flow of thoughts? Um, that's a very good question. And um, I I will come in a minute to telling you why I've become a spiritualist medium, which I have. Um, because this is, this is an issue that, that when you're training, when you're doing your spiritual development as a medium, um, this is one of the things you have to deal with. Um, the, ch the channel of communication from the spirit world, whatever that might be, is subconscious. So therefore, it doesn't come through your normal cognitive system, your cognitive system being your five senses that get interpreted by your brain. It comes, it comes in subconsciously at, at some deep level. And the whole point in training to be a... Um, spiritual medium or a psychic I'm, I'm not psychic i'm just a medium um is that you learn to get your own thoughts out of the way and allow the subconscious thoughts to come to the surface unfiltered and uh unabridged <laughs> and so when my father was speaking to me yes i could sit and imagine my father speaking to me and i could imagine his voice but that would be my conscious cognitive system working, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And could I actually surprise myself with, with something that I've made up out of my own head? You can't. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is how you distinguish your own thoughts from, from the communication that comes in from, from the field of consciousness, let's call it that. Um, that you know... You know when, or you, you, it's a good clue that it's not coming from you if what's coming into your head surprises you. And so the things my father was saying surprised me. It, it surprised me when he said he got a pain in, pain in his stomach. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, where did that come from? You know, I, I didn't dream that up. That, that just came to me. Where did the wallet with the money in it come from? I didn't dream that up, did I? Mm -hmm. I mean, what did I know about it? Um, and and with practice, you can actually you can actually allow uh, your subconscious mind to speak to you, and you, and you can you can listen to it. But beware of the um, 
the fallacy of believing everything your subconscious mind tells you because mm -hmm. your subconscious mind can also come up with a load of poppycock as well. So it's a very it's a very difficult um, thing to discipline yourself to do. And I mentioned earlier about science. There were two reasons why science um, doesn't fund psi experiments. One of them is funding, which I've talked about. And the other one is that a lot of the experiments that are actually conducted uh, tend to be a bit inconclusive. The, the effect that they tend to measure, although it, it's measurable, it's not significant. And when you, when you actually create an experiment, when you set up an experiment, it's very important that, that you design the experiment. When I studied for my master's degree, one of the modules that we did was experimental design. How do you design an experiment to design to design out all of the biases and and all the chance of you know what what they call confirmation biases? Yeah. One thing that that is never accounted for in experimental design in psi is the psychic effect of the experimenters themselves. And and I think this is a significant effect. You tend to find that psi experiments that are conducted by people who believe in spirituality produce better results mm. than scientific experiments produced by hardened skeptics. And the hardened skeptics say, oh, it's all confirmation bias. And they won't, they, they, they can't see the obvious thing in front of them. It's their own psychic effect on the experiment that the, the very thing that they're actually trying to detect is the thing that they subconsciously using to spoil the experiment mm -hmm. they're not they, they're not designing themselves out of the experiment and it's actually i don't know how you do that actually um although um what have you have you met, have you met uh, online uh, you 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 won't you won't uh, ever forget her once you've met her um, you, you don't forget a name like that she she appears quite often in in uh, in the uh, consciousness project um, she lives in San Diego, but she came over to England last year and I took her and husband out for lunch and we, we had a long chat. And um, she's, a, she's, she's one of uh, Southern USA's top mediums. And she was one of the people that was actually um, involved in the psychic spine program run by the American government. She was a remote viewer. And um, she's got a lot of very interesting stuff to tell people about that. I mean, she, they used to they used to sit in 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 isolated rooms from one another, all the all the mediums, all the subjects, and they, sometimes they were given a piece of paper with some numbers on it. And her attitude: what what do these numbers mean? It means nothing to me. But that was all they were given as input, and somehow that those, those the, the numbers, by the way, were coordinates of Russian missile silos and things like right, that, right. and somehow they managed to visualise the place that was represented by the numbers on the papers. Now that defies all common sense and all yeah, logic. Yeah. And I believe that I believe that the project was closed down by um, George W. because his Christian beliefs thought it was some sort of heresy. Uh, was, that right. project, um, was that project Stargate or whatever it was called? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, they 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 just thought it was all bunkum because what what they'd done is they'd used used their own confirmation bias to 
to dismiss it. And, and it is, in scientific terms, if you've got a load of data that suggests that reality might be completely different to the way you are modeling it, and, and you just dismiss the data because it must be false, there must be some error in it, and you won't even look at it, you won't analyze yeah, it. Yeah, that's no longer that's science, actually, is it? That's actually fundamentally, that's fundamentally in opposition to the scientific method. Mm. If you just refuse to look at the data, uh, but of course nobody will look at the data because nobody will set up the experiments, nobody will fund the experiments, except for ions. Ions are worth looking at if you, if you want. Yeah, I did try to get in contact with Dean Radin, see if I could get him on, but he was he's busy working on his, his new book, which is, yeah, fair enough. But oh, yeah, yeah. Look a bit further into his, his works. I've only briefly really touched upon it. My, I've <laughs> usually been looking at near-death experiences and things <clears> like that. I haven't had much time to go into these other areas, but I'd like to. 